Next week's Mother's Day, or as we like to call it, National Bring Your Mother to Church Day. So if she's not here, make sure she's here next week, okay? We'll have an iced coffee bar to celebrate moms after the service is over. And so uh, we would love to have you and your mother come. If you are a mom with us, take this opportunity to twist arms and guilt children into coming to church, okay? Listen, there's no shame in doing that. Make them come to church with you on Mother's Day. Why not? Well, today we are back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to jump back into our series called Cross Church through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, we're going to talk about kind of an interesting passage today. I want to start by talking a little bit about the idea of tolerance. Tolerance is defined as a fair, objective, and permissive attitude toward those whose opinions practices, race, religion, nationality, etc., differ from one's own or freedom from bigotry or the willingness to accept feelings, habits, or beliefs that are different from your own. Tolerance was sort of the inbred virtue of my generation. We were taught that it is fundamental to our democracy and it is fundamental to peace. As Robert Frost put it, I hold it to be the inalienable right of anybody to go to hell in his own way. And while I agree that people have a right to do things that I believe are wrong or that I disagree with, that I believe could ultimately end up in the judgment of hell, I don't agree with the tone of this quote, hopefully obviously, because it promotes the widespread idea that we should simply leave people alone and not get involved in their business. After all, who am I to dictate what is right and wrong? Everything is just subjective anyway, is it not? And so they're gonna do what they wanna do and I'm going to tolerate that. Actually, we've now moved beyond tolerance in our culture to affirmation and advocacy. It is not enough that you tolerate beliefs or practices or lifestyles with which you disagree. You must now affirm and champion those things. Silence is violence, we are told. In fact, you're not allowed to disagree with people. And sometimes it seems that we are just a step behind society within the walls of the church. We may not affirm sinful lifestyles, but do we tolerate them? Do we willingly accept sin in our own lives or in our families or in our church, unwilling to speak up for fear of offense and that we're gonna be labeled with the most Uh, the worst conceivable monikers like intolerant or offensive or judgmental? Do we, along with our culture, hold tolerance not only as a necessary attitude among people who have various points of view, but as some kind of supreme virtue? G.K. Chesterton, who was a lay theologian and Christian thinker, once said, tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions. Perhaps it's also the virtue of a church without convictions. And many people would recoil at that kind of idea, but that is only because they've misunderstood the meaning of tolerance and because they have bought into this cultural idea that tolerance is a virtue. But tolerance is not a virtue. Tolerance demands an object, something or someone to tolerate. You can tolerate some things, but you don't have to tolerate everything. But virtue is something that has to be applied to every area of life. Not only that, but 
tolerance has most often been misdefined. It is not a synonym for affirmation. Look up an article on tolerance or attend a tolerance training session and inevitably you will see a picture of racially, religiously, and sexually diverse people side-hugging and smiling. However, tolerating something does not mean accepting that that thing is right or true. It doesn't mean that you're happy about it. It means that you won't do something to hurt the person that you are tolerating. Tolerance simply means that you're willing to put up with something or someone. And in society, some level of tolerance is necessary, isn't it? But what about when it comes to sin in the church? Is tolerance a virtue when it comes to sin in our lives? Or when it comes to sin in the lives of people in the church? Or to a sinful lifestyle? Is it possible that we've adopted a worldly virtue, we brought it into the church, and allowed it to grow in us? Because in contrast to this worldview in which tolerance is the supreme virtue, Christians don't believe that tolerance is a virtue at all. And this doesn't mean that Christians are mean-spirited, judgmental people who are always on the attack, can't get along with others who don't share their viewpoint or anything like that. It does mean that Jesus calls us to something greater than tolerance. He calls us to love. And love is a real virtue. It is the supreme Christian virtue. And he calls us to holiness, which includes intolerance towards sin. And so in today's passage, we're gonna find something that has the potential to offend, especially if you've adopted tolerance as a virtue in your life. Because Paul teaches us to value holiness in God's church more than tolerance. Further, he teaches the church not to allow someone to remain in the church if they are arrogantly continuing in unrepentant sin. This is what we see. We must value holiness over tolerance in our church. So let's read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2 so we can understand the situation that Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church. It says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The Corinthian church was tolerating a man who claimed to be a Christian, who was part of their group, but he was sleeping with a woman who was apparently his stepmother. And that was something that wasn't even tolerated in the broader culture. It was considered taboo, shameful, or sinful, even in the the Greek or Roman culture of the day. And hopefully, nothing like that is happening among us. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to learn in this passage, because in addition to correcting this particular circumstance, Paul wants to make a point about holiness in the church. And so we're not off the hook because presumably nobody's sleeping with their stepmom. If you are, you should stop immediately. The church was arrogant about this sin. They were boasting about it, apparently. It's hard to know if if they were actually boasting verbally about the sin. It could be that they thought they had such freedom and grace in Jesus that people in the church could commit sin like this. 
And it didn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jesus has given us grace, and maybe they were boasting that way. That would, that would be a misunderstanding of the freedom and the grace that Jesus has given us. Or it could be that their arrogance was expressed through apathy concerning the situation. They just didn't think they needed to do anything about it. Why rock the boat? Why make waves about somebody else's sin? They didn't think it was a big deal. Either way, they were valuing tolerance over holiness, and Paul was about to show them why this was a big mistake. And the first reason their tolerance was a big mistake is that they were putting temporary comfort over eternal life. By acting like sin was no big deal, they were potentially allowing this man to feel at ease in his sin, which could result in an eternity of judgment for him. Read verses three to five with me. Paul says this, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's a lot going on in those couple of verses. Paul is essentially saying that as the, as the apostle, who planted that church and, and brought the gospel to Corinth in the knowledge that Jesus was among them when they were gathered together, they were to put this man outside the church. He was no longer supposed to be welcomed as a believer among them. That is what Paul means when he says, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He's saying, put him outside the church where the spirit of God is at work, where people have been transferred out of darkness into light. Put him out of that place where you know the safety and the comfort of the work of the spirit so that he can know that he is not part of the people of God, that he is not part of that kingdom of light. And you can see this is what Paul means in verse 13 when he writes, purge the evil person from among you. So when he says he's to, to be turned over to Satan, he simply means to put the man back into the realm of Satan, which is the realm of this world, where Satan exercises dominion and people are trapped in their sin and in the, and in the darkness of their hearts. It's worth noting that Paul seems to be applying Jesus' own words here. Christians have often said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, as an affirmation that when we gather for worship, we can know the presence of Jesus is with us, as a sort of reassurance that God is among us. And while that is true, the context of that gathering, in Jesus' own words, is actually for judgment. Matthew 18, 15 to 20 says this, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus and Paul seem really mean here, don't they? It seems really mean that you would suggest that you would put anybody outside the church and of course, I'm saying that from a perspective of tolerance. That's not nice. It is not nice that you would say, you do not belong 
in the body of Christ. This is not what you want the church to do. You want the church to make you feel better. You want the church to condone your lifestyle. And whatever that lifestyle is, you want the church to put the thumbs up, the A-OK, the stamp of approval, or at least not say anything about it. And the trouble is that because the church is made up of a bunch of us who would prefer not to rock the boat, not to make waves, not to confront others' sin, and certainly not have anyone confront our sin, we often adopt an attitude of tolerance towards sin. And here's how the reasoning we use often works. If we confront someone's sin, they might leave the church. And if they leave the church, where are they gonna go to experience God's grace or hear the message and, and what other opportunity will they have to grow? Now that sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? It sounds compassionate. And as a pastor, I can relate to that thinking. It could certainly relieve some of the uncomfortable conversations that I have to have with people. If sin was no big deal, and the answer was merely to tolerate its ongoing presence in a person's life, especially if that person is living a willful lifestyle of sin, they know they should repent, they know it's wrong, but they do not, then it'd be easier to just ignore that and hope it goes away or pretend like it's none of my business. That makes church a lot easier. But the command of Jesus and Paul is pretty much the opposite of that, isn't it? Our desires sometimes want to avoid trouble in the present, but the biblical response to obvious, unrepented sin is to stop providing comfort in the present so that a person can be saved in the future. You can put it this way, we can prioritize eternal life over temporal comfort. Paul says to remove the person from the protection of the church so that his flesh could be destroyed. He doesn't mean that his body is going to die or be destroyed uh, immediately or anything like that. What he means is that his sinful desires could hopefully be destroyed. If the community of believers put him out, he would no longer have the comfort of their approval. He could not deceive himself into thinking his actions weren't deadly sin. He would no longer have the protection of a spirit-filled community, and he would be back in the kingdom of Satan where he was really living all along, but didn't recognize it because the church was aiding his pretense. And our culture values the immediate because by and large, our shared beliefs in our culture are not based on the idea that there's eternal life or an eternal soul. So we do our best not to offend, we do our best to avoid discomfort right now, but what if some discomfort and offense now could save a person in the long run? To give you an example, think a moment about parenting. One of the biggest jobs of parenting is to make your kids do uncomfortable things right now, isn't it? That's what you do as a parent. You make your kids do things they don't want to do. That's like 95% of it is I'm going to make them do these things that they don't want to do because it's going to be better for them in the future. I don't want to go to school today. Too bad you're going to school, and that's the end of that discussion. I don't want to go to church. Well, guess what? You're going. And for the parents who say, you can't make your kids go to church, guess what? You can, and I do it every Sunday. I don't want to admit that I lied and stole. Well, I'm sorry. You're going to have to get a hold of yourself 
You're gonna have to learn to be a young man or a young woman, you're gonna have to go admit what you did. I don't wanna apologize, you're going to go apologize. I don't wanna handle this situation, you're going to learn to be strong and handle these situations as a young man or a young woman of God should. That's like what parents do. And what if the church is supposed to be doing something similar to that as well? But the goal isn't just to make everybody feel comfortable in the present so we can all get through life without making too many waves, but it's actually to help make people uncomfortable sometimes so that in the long run, their soul is saved. I wanna be clear that we're not talking about starting the next inquisition, all right? That's not what Paul is saying. This passage isn't about being judgmental. We'll talk about that more in a moment. We're not going around trying to find and expose people's faults. We're not talking about looking for failures in people's lives and then kicking them out because they didn't meet our exacting standards. This passage is dealing with blatant, unrepented sin that everybody knew was happening and yet had just been turning a blind eye to. This man had not admitted that what he was doing was wrong. He hadn't repented. He hadn't changed his mind about the morality of his own actions and then sought to change his actions with the help of the Holy Spirit and the community of believers. This was a man who was sinning openly and pretending like nothing was wrong. We're also not talking about individuals trying to hunt down sin in other people and confronting that sin on their own as an individual. This is a matter that was known to the whole church and wasn't dealt with through individual confrontation or through gossip. And if the point of this passage isn't that you become some kind of sin sleuth, and you're staking out people's houses and publicly confronting them for sin concerning which they've repented or they know that they're in the wrong and, and they're trying to turn away from it but they're stumbling. If that's not the point of this passage, then what are you supposed to do with these verses? What do we do with these things? I think, for one thing, they should remind you to prioritize people's eternal well-being over their temporal comfort. Love is not the same thing as tolerance. In fact, the scripture says this, that love does not delight in evil. It's not apathetic about sin. Love isn't content to let people suffer eternal judgment so far as we don't get too offended and worked up right now. They also remind us that we shouldn't equate discipline with meanness. Sometimes when people learn that church leadership or a pastor has confronted someone and that person is offended and they leave the church or they're talking to other people about it, people assume well, the church is just nosy, what business is it of theirs, they're controlling, they're judgmental, but confrontation or discipline is not necessarily mean. In fact, oftentimes it can be the exact opposite. Our primary goal as a church is not to sail through life without making any waves, it is to encourage people toward maturity in Christ. Another application is to be intolerant of sin in your own life. And these verses are about a man who did not see the blatant sin in his own life and the church was complicit in his blindness. He was wrapped up in temporary comfort, he did not take seriously the eternal jeopardy that he was in because of his sin. Today, if you're concealing sin in your life for which you've not repented, I may not know about it. Nobody else in this church may know about that sin, but God knows what's going on in your life. 
Listen, I'm not talking about that, that you have repented of your past and you had a, a fault or a failure, that you made a mistake, you said something you wish you wouldn't have and you've confessed it and you've turned away from it. I'm not talking about that. The scripture tells us that if we will confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins. He'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What I'm talking about is if you're living a lifestyle of sin, ongoing, haven't repented, don't really care, don't listen when other people have brought it up, you are in danger of eternal judgment. You're in danger of hell. God will not overlook unrepented sin. I'm not saying you've gotta try to go through your past and weasel out every time you did something wrong or thought a bad thought and confess it specifically. I believe that when you come to Jesus and you confess that his blood covers your sin, he takes care of your past. But if you're living in sin and think it doesn't matter, it's no big deal to God, it is a big deal because Jesus not only died to forgive your sin, he died to free you from that sin, to bring you grace into that circumstance. And so if you're living in it and you're thinking, it doesn't matter, I don't care, listen, it does matter. God cares and he wants you to be free of it and you need to experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit that would convince you to put that sin to death in your life so that you can live a life of righteousness before God. Listen to Galatians chapter five, verses 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a serious call for us because sometimes we have adopted what we think is the virtue of tolerance toward our own sin and toward the sin of others. Tolerance is no virtue when it comes to sin. In fact, tolerance is a deadly vice when it comes to sin. It'll destroy you because God wants to give you power and grace and forgiveness for your sin and help to overcome your sin. But if you continue to walk in the way that you used to walk before you knew him without a repentant heart, without any desire to move forward in the grace of God, then you are in danger of God's judgment. God's grace is real, but grace is not tolerance for sin. Grace is freedom from sin. And I wanna urge you not to take a worldly view of sin in your own life. God wants you to die to your sin so that you might live in him. And if you're going about calling yourself a Christian, but you are knowingly and willfully holding on to things that you know God's word says are sinful, By God's grace, change your mind today. Hear his word, repent, confess, and receive his forgiveness. Having instructed them how they should deal with this man living in blatant sin, Paul now helps them to understand why. Jesus died for our sin, and he's given us new life through his resurrection. And it's true that this is all by his grace, but his grace doesn't leave us where we are. His grace makes us something that's new. And in order to illustrate this for the Corinthian church, Paul refers to the Passover celebration. He talks about it in verses six through eight. He says this, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The Passover celebration commemorated Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt and how God had made them his own people, made them a nation. And every year they remembered the Passover by slaughtering the Passover lamb, which represented Jesus, who cleanses us from sin and causes God's wrath to pass over us, just as the death angel passed over every Jewish home in Egypt who had the blood of the lamb painted on the doorposts and passed over them on that night of the first Passover. Part of that celebration was the removal of all leaven from the house. Now in those days, they didn't use what we think of as leavening, they didn't use yeast. Instead, each time they made bread, a small lump of dough was saved and it was allowed to ferment so that it could be used as a leavening agent for the next batch, similar to how you might use a sourdough starter if you're familiar with making bread or baking bread at all. And over the course of the year, they would just keep taking a little bit from that day's batch of dough and saving it back. And over the course of the year, bacteria could build up in that dough and it could potentially cause sickness. So there needed to be something that would stop that and would bring newness to their leavening agent, to that batch of dough. And God takes the opportunity of what they needed to do and he puts it into this Passover celebration so that every year at the Passover they are commanded to not eat leavened bread for seven days. In fact, they have to remove all the leaven from their house. They have to get rid of their starter lump. They have to completely get rid of it. And then at the end of that seven days, presumably, they would take a little bit, a little lump of dough that they had been using for their unleavened bread and they would set it aside and they'd allow that to ferment and then they would use what was a new starter for the rest of that year. In other words, every year they had this reminder in this celebration of how God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, made them a new nation, that he had done something by his grace and made them a new people. He had made them new. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, Paul reminds us that we have been made new in Jesus. He's redeemed us. He's purified us. And if that's the case, then we should live like we are new people. And not just as individuals, but our community, our church, should live like a people that have been made new. However, sometimes we get the idea that a little sin is really no big deal. We can overlook it. We can pretend like it's not existent. We might think that another person's sin doesn't really have anything to do with me or with us as a body. It doesn't affect the whole community. But Paul is saying through this illustration that it actually does affect us. I need a volunteer. I need a volunteer who uh, likes sweets. Do I have anybody like that who's brave enough to come join me today? All right, Bruce, come on up. So come on up here. I brought for you, Bruce an incredible tray of brownies. And I'd like you to take a brownie and, and take a big bite and tell everybody what you think of my brownies, okay? Wait, 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 wait. Before you do, okay, before you do this, I, I should tell you, I, I put a special ingredient in it. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think it'll hurt you. <laughs> but no, have you, have you heard of the, the most expensive coffee in the world, Bruce? It's a coffee that they let these little, I think they're rodents, they're called civets, they eat it, and then they, they pass it, and they collect it, and it's the most expensive coffee. I, I thought maybe something like that with brownies would be really good 
And, you know, I went over to Aaron's house and found some things in the yard from his dog. Uh, there's only a little in there. And so if you could just, consistency is what I was going for. Do you still want to take a bite, Bruce? No, you don't. It's, there's actually nothing in there. You can have it if you want. You want a brownie? You can have a brownie. Okay. All right, you can have a brownie. Thank you, Bruce. So I'm sure you've all heard this illustration before. And often we use it to point out that, um, we use it to point out that uh, just a little bit of something like sin in our lives can, can infect the whole batch and you wouldn't ever wanna like just, you know, a little bit of dog doo-doo in the brownies. You wouldn't eat that, would you? Even though it's just a little, you're not gonna eat that. But Paul uses this illustration for the church as a whole. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole batch. All of it is affected by what happens. See, we often like to think of ourselves as loosely connected individuals. But in the body of Christ, the Bible teaches us that we're actually all interconnected very tightly. And that what we do for one another and toward one another and what you do as an individual actually affects the church as a whole. Just a little bit ruins the whole batch of brownies. And in Galatians 6.1, Paul wrote this. He said, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, he tells us that we are to restore, and that is the goal. If we are tolerant of sin in our church, that is obvious, that is unrepented, it affects everyone. It hinders God's blessing on the church. It hinders our witness in the community. It sets a bad example for the next generation of believers, and it makes a mockery of God's purposes in saving us and making us his church. Restoration is the goal. But if someone claims to be a believer and continues in a lifestyle of sin, then we shouldn't condone that or treat it lightly. Valuing holiness over tolerance means that we prioritize purity. You want a pure brownie, don't you? You don't want one that's got something from the backyard in it. The true understanding of what Jesus has done for us does not permit us to turn a blind eye to sin in the community of believers. God has not only called us as individuals, he's called us as a group to represent him to the world. And this passage reminds us that the church is more than a social club, it's more than a safe space to help us feel comfortable. The church is a community of believers that has been called out of the world by God and made representatives of his kingdom. And as such, our goal is not just to have the most people, though we do want to grow, nor to provide feel-good events and services, though we do want you to be encouraged when you come to church and we're together. We want you to be blessed. But we are called to holiness and to growth in Jesus. And sometimes we avoid intimacy and community because we don't want accountability for our actions. We don't want our motives to be challenged. However, to be a Christian is to give up individualism and it is to participate in a body that is about more than just our ambitions. If you're a believer in Jesus and, and you're living on the fringe of the church, not really connected to the community of believers, I wanna challenge you this morning to do four things. First, ask yourself why. Why are you avoiding closer connection in the body of Christ and trying to remain 
on the fringe of things. If your motive is selfishness or fear, repent. Change your mind. Take take the next step in getting connected to the body of believers. And that next step is this. Get baptized. And maybe you already are, but if you're not yet baptized, then you should be. Because when you're baptized, you're making a public profession of faith that makes you accountable to those who watch. You are claiming to belong to Jesus. You're saying, I belong to Jesus, and I belong to this body who is witnessing what is taking place in my life. So if you've not been baptized, you need to take that step. If you have, you should take the third step, which is to join a connect group or a Bible study where you can get to know other believers in a personal way, and you can be known by them. You need to take a step beyond attending and put yourself in a position to care for others and to be cared for by others. And also, I would encourage you toward this final step. Become a member of the church. I know that sometimes people are suspicious of church membership. They wonder why it's necessary. Isn't that just a lot of hierarchy and red tape and unnecessary bureaucracy and, and stuff like that? But membership is just a commitment. No one is saying that you're saved because you're a member or you're not saved because you're not a member. Nothing of that sort. But you are saying that you're part of the body, that you're committed to it. And that includes accountability. Accountability for showing up, participating in ministry, giving generously, supporting missions, sharing your faith with others. Don't be a spiritual drifter. Prioritize purity by taking a step toward increased commitment to community because God has not called you to be by yourself. He's called you to a community of believers where you can be held up, encouraged, strengthened, and also held accountable so that you can live a life like Jesus with others and together we make a bigger impact if we're committed to purity. And Paul concludes his directions on this matter with some instructions about judging others that may strike us as a little bit surprising given what we usually hear as rhetoric in our culture about judgment. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Apparently, Paul had written in a previous letter that they should not associate with sexually immoral people. And they hadn't listened to him because they thought he meant anybody who was sexually immoral, and obviously that would be impossible. How would you even determine that or know that? You'd have to become a hermit. So they rejected his words. But he didn't mean that they could not be around people in the culture who practiced sexual immorality and and, and they were making no claim to belong to Jesus, to be a Christian. Instead, what he meant was that they should not associate with someone who claimed to be a Christian but continued to live a sexually immoral lifestyle, unchallenged, unconvicted. Unfortunately, many take the teachings of Jesus that say that we should not judge others, and they think that this means that we're to have an attitude of tolerance towards sin, or that we can never determine if someone's actions or attitudes are right or wrong, or if they're sinful. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, I thought Christians weren't supposed to judge. And of course, Christians are not supposed to be hypocrites, 
not supposed to tear others down and attempt to make themselves look more righteous. They're not supposed to go around nitpicking everyone else based on their preferences and opinions that are not clearly taught in Scripture. Their motive should not be to tear down, but to help people to see the truth. But none of that means that Christians should not be able to tell the difference between right and wrong. And when it comes to people in the church, they sh- that they shouldn't act on that discernment or judgment. So what we can learn from what Paul says is this, that we can prioritize proper judgment. There's a difference between being judgmental and making a proper judgment. A judgmental person finds joy in pointing out the flaws of other people. Their goal is not growth in the Lord, their goal is usually to make themselves look good by making someone else look bad. They put burdens and expectations on others that they can't carry themselves and make no attempt to help them. They will tolerate sin in their own lives and talk about the sin in other people's lives, but they won't do anything to actually bring repentance or healing to either one. That is being judgmental. You know a judgmental person when they jump to conclusions before they know very much about the situation. You can tell that a person is judgy when they talk about someone's sin, but they're not willing to act, and they don't want to rock the boat or upset the balance, so they'll talk about their sin, but they won't talk to them about their sin. However, just because there are judgy people in the world, and even judgy people in the church, does not negate the responsibility that the church has to judge believers. And this kind of judgment means discerning what is sinful and bringing gentle correction that leads toward growth and restoration. Sometimes by refusing to judge, what we do in the church is we become sin enablers. When we treat sin as if it's no big deal, others will notice and it will be treated as such in our church. When Paul says in verse 11 that you should not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or a a sister but is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, he's not speaking about Christians who make a mistake and repent. He's talking about people who believe that they can live a lifestyle of sexual immorality and be a Christian or live a lifestyle of greed and be a Christian. And by allowing them to continue among us as if nothing is out of order, what we end up doing is enabling their sin. By not judging them now, we may condemn them to an eternity of judgment later. Church discipline has fallen on rather hard times in our culture. I think in part because our connections to a particular church community have diminished. We don't feel as closely knit in the community of believers perhaps as we once did. And in part I think it's because we've adopted the worldly virtue of tolerance. In fact, most people don't want to be corrected at all and may get upset when others are corrected. But God's word teaches us that God disciplines those he loves and that church, uh, churches and leaders in churches are to correct people to bring them toward repentance. I want to encourage you, don't be quick to write off correction as judgmental. It may in fact be helping to preserve someone's life. We must value holiness over tolerance in our church. And to do this, we can prioritize eternal life over temporary comfort. We can prioritize purity, and we can prioritize proper judgment. And so we've set up a sin tip line so that you can anonymously rat out your church friends. (laughs) Just text their name and their sin to 413-300. I'm just kidding. We have not done that, all right? And we don't want to do that. And if you think that that's what this message has been about, 
that you should become judgmental and start nitpicking the sin in people's lives, you've misunderstood the point of the passage and the point of the message this morning. Because the point is not that you start pointing out every fault and failure in a brother or sister in Christ. That's not it at all. But it is a reminder that tolerance of sin is no virtue. Tolerance of sin in your life is no virtue. Tolerance of a lifestyle of sin by someone who claims to be a Christian is no virtue either. And I think that we've seen several important applications throughout the message. Take sin seriously. Take community and your commitment to the community of believers seriously. And take church discipline seriously. Jesus is our Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed. He's our savior who cleanses us from all sin. He frees us from bondage to sin. He delivers us from judgment. He has been sacrificed. So we should not celebrate his sacrifice with lives of ongoing, unrepented sin or a community that tolerates that kind of lifestyle. Rather, we should value holiness over tolerance and become what Jesus died to make us. He died to make us holy. He died to make us pure. He died to make us free. And what Paul is saying in this passage is, be a church that is actually living what Jesus died to make you. Don't tolerate sin in your life or in your community. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? And I'm going to ask if uh, those who are on the prayer team of prayer partners, if there are any of you here, uh, pastors, if, if you want to come as well, you can come forward. And we're going to have a time of response this morning for a few moments. And if you're a believer in Jesus and, and you're hearing this message this morning, if you're saying, I, I trust Jesus with my life, I've already put my faith in him, at some point I've made that decision to follow Jesus, then the application for you this morning is simply that you would not tolerate sin in your own life, that you take it seriously. But if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, if you've not made a decision to follow Christ, if you've not uh, put your faith in him, then the good news for you from this message this morning is this that Jesus died to save you from sin. The message this morning is not a message of, 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 of fear or, or judgment for you if you'll believe in Jesus. Though, if you do not, there is judgment. The scripture says this, that we've all sinned and we fall short of God's glory. We fall short of God's perfection, his standard for our lives. We, we fail to live up to what he created us to be and to do, and so uh, we are condemned. We're condemned to an eternity separated from God in a place that the Bible calls hell. And that separation was not what God intended for you. In fact, he intended the opposite for you. He wanted you to know him, to be in relationship with him, to, to be able to participate in his work in the world. That's what he intended you for. That's what he created you for. But we stray from that when we fail to acknowledge God in our lives. We decide we're gonna do our own things. We're gonna go our own ways. And we're not gonna listen to what God wants for us. And we all do that. The scripture says that we have all sinned. We fall short of God's glory. Today, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, then you're in that place where you are living a life of sin. You're caught in that trap of sin. Perhaps you have tried to make yourself better. You've tried to alleviate the guilt, the shame in your life. You've not been able to do it. But Jesus has died for your sin. What you could not do, God did when he sent his son to die for you. He died so that you could die in him. 
He died so that you wouldn't have to die the death of separation from God, but that by faith in Jesus, your old life could be put to death in him and you could have new life in him. And that's what we talked about today, that Christ has been sacrificed so that something new can take place in you today. Today, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, and you know that you need to be made new. Maybe you came in and, and you have heard what we've talked about this morning or even before we began uh, preaching and, and, and hearing the word of God, even while we were singing, there was a sense in your life of conviction or this convincing that I'm supposed to be here. I'm not here by accident. And God wants to say something to me. Even though you've hardened your heart against him, God does desire for you to be here. And he does desire to speak to you, to minister to you today. If that's you, you don't have a relationship with him. You've turned away from him. You've been running from him. But he brought you here this morning. I want to challenge you and encourage you. Give your life to Jesus today. Surrender to him. By faith, confess that he's Lord. Believe in him. And the scripture says you'll be saved. You'll be saved from a life of separation from God, a life lived in guilt and shame, a life that moves away from God eternally toward death. You'll be saved from that today if you'll believe in Jesus. So if you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, you don't know who he is, you don't have that foundation in your life of, of faith, of trust, and what he's done. I'm gonna ask you to, to put your faith in him today. The scripture says this, that if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so this morning, I'm not asking you to do something, to work something out. I'm not asking you to, to join this church necessarily. I'm asking you to confess faith in Jesus. You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, but today you wanna to put your faith in him. You want to believe him for salvation. You want to be free and forgiven from your sin. I'm going to ask you if you take this first step and you just lift up your hand. Is there anybody like that? You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, but you want to begin that today. You want to pray and ask the Lord to forgive your sin, to enter your life, to redeem you, to restore you, to change you. Is there anybody like that? I'm going to wait for just a moment. If you're joining us online and you don't have that relationship with God and you'd like to respond today, you can just text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061. Is there anybody like that? Anybody like that? This is, this is the opportunity. Don't waste it. God has brought you here today, so don't think that there's a, another day tomorrow. This is the moment that he's given you. Is there anybody like that? second response is this, and, and I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment, and then you can be dismissed. But when, when I do, uh, if you want to pray with one of our prayer partners or pastors, if there's something in your life, a sin that you've been struggling with, or maybe there's a sin in your life that you've not been struggling with, that you've just been harboring and allowing to continue, today you need to confess that, and you need to be healed. Scripture says in James chapter 5, we practiced it earlier, that if there's anyone among you who is sick, you should call for the elders of the church and be anointed with oil and pray the prayer of faith and the Lord will heal them. But it also says this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed. The Lord is talking there more than just about physical healing. He's talking about the healing of your soul before him. So if you're, if you're saying, I, I am a Christian, I've made that confession of faith. But I've been tolerating sin in my life. This morning, we don't want to invite you to a walk of shame. 
That's not the point. The point is that we want you to leave here free. And part of that is confession and repentance and faith that God has done that. And these folks are not here to judge you. They are here to pray with you and believe with you, confirming that when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. He'll forgive your sin and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so before you run out, if you're dealing with unrepented sin in your life, before you leave, would you take that sin seriously? Would you repent? Would you receive the forgiveness and freedom of Jesus? Heavenly Father, today we thank you so much for the grace you've given us and the way that you've shown us your love. Jesus, we thank you that you do not save us to leave us where we are. We thank you that the life we have in you is not a life of tolerating sin until we get to eternity, but it is a life of victory, as we sang earlier. Today, Lord, I pray that we would be a church that walks in victory, victory over sin in our lives and in our congregation. I pray, Father, that you would put a desire in our hearts to live pure and right before you, not judgmental, not looking down on others for their faults, the difficulties of their lives, but loving one another enough to not be tolerant of sin in our own lives and in our church. God, teach us the difference between being judgmental and judging rightly between what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. And teach us, Lord, to be able to be a community that represents you well to our valley because we are showing the world what it looks like when a body of believers truly loves one another and when they're cleansed by the blood of your son, Jesus. Thank you for that, Lord. We believe you to do it in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being at service this morning. Please be respectful as you leave because there may be people who want to pray. If you do want to come forward, please do without shame or without fear. We would be happy to pray for you. Otherwise, we will see you again on Wednesday evening for our prayer meeting. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.